Hello and welcome to Tag One Team Talks, the webinar and podcast series about emerging web technologies. I'm your host, Preston So, and welcome to our Tag Team Talk on Reason ML. I'm very excited for this talk today. We're going to be talking about building resilient web applications with the need for mission critical stability. I'm Preston So, I'm your editor in chief here at Tag One Consulting and also senior director of product strategy at Oracle and author of Decoupled Drupal in practice. I am the host and moderator of Tag One Team Talks. I'm joined today by some really amazing folks. Uh, first of all, Patrick Staffa in Vienna, Austria. He's the lead React developer at Tag One and also member of the Reason Association and a contributor to Reason ML. Also, we're joined by Michael Myers, who's currently located in the Berkshires and managing director of Tag One. And I'm located here in New York City. And today we're gonna to be talking about Reason ML and some of the ways in which you can leverage Reason ML to really superpower your projects. So let's go ahead and dig right in. Patrick, what exactly is Reason ML and what are some of the use cases for it? What's this best suited for? So hello first, everyone. Thanks for having me today. So what is Reason about? So Reason is a functional programming language with built-in React.js support. And it's, it also has a very efficient tool chain and a very JavaScript-like syntax. So when you look at ReasonML and squint a little bit, it kind of looks like ECMAScript and has all the nice traits of a functional programming language you would expect. So the language itself also offers seamless interoperability to existing JavaScript, which is very important. I mean, there have been a lot of functional programming languages out there with the same promise. None of them got this, you know, like interoperability thing to existing JavaScript, right? But there is like dedicated syntax to, to interrupt with that code. Each reason module compiles into uh, one spec compliant JavaScript module. So it's uh, like in combination with a very fast tool chain and uh, human readable JavaScript output, it makes it a great fit to gradually put it in your existing JavaScript code base or even TypeScript code base. There are, there are ways to even like make it interrupt with TypeScript code to, to, to give you all the types in TypeScript as well. So it's not a lock-in thing. And about the compiler of ReasonML, it's a, so it's a compiler which involves a type system which ensures that every, every value, every function, every module you have in there in your program, that each of these uh, have a correct type applied. So you don't even need to write type annotations in most of the time because the system will infer the, the types for you like in, in a very, very strongly typed way. That means the quality of the type inference ensures that each, whenever you're successfully compiling a pure reason program, you can definitely be sure that there won't be any runtime type errors as long as you don't do any super crazy JavaScript interoperability hacks. And this whole thing, like the, the way the type inference work, is made possible through the, the foundation on the what the compiler is built, which is a Hindley-Milner-based type system, which you probably know from other type systems like Haskell or OCaml or whatever. Yeah, and so what you can say is that Reason takes a different approach on putting types into JavaScript. You usually know the, the gradually type approach, like TypeScript does, or flow type, where they try to be JavaScript or stay as close to JavaScript as possible and add types on the go. And the type system is still evolving in that process. So this makes it sometimes hard to later on like scale the project when you're trying to upgrade the type system because TypeScript has a major breaking change. Suddenly everything, or flow type especially, has a breaking change in there and suddenly your whole code base needs to be adapted to the new type system. 
And in case of reason, it's the other way around. You have a, you have a type system which has been there for decades, a compiler which is very stable and fast. And the language reflects JavaScript well enough to just compile to very, very readable JavaScript. So yeah, it's just a different approach on how to do this. And the results are really stunning so far. That's really interesting. And, and, you know, I think a lot of our audience here at the Tag One Team Talks uh, kind of fan base is not really familiar with ReasonML. I understand it's, you know, was originally created by, by Facebook. It's open source under MIT, you know, and I know that there's a really interesting kind of adoption right now happening of ReasonML because of its compelling tool chain. And I know that, you know, I understand, for example, that uh, ReasonML's tool chain actually outperforms TypeScripts. I'm kind of curious, could you talk a little bit more about the tool chain and, and what's in there? Why is it so great? And why are people flocking to ReasonML for the tool chain? So the tool chain is a very interesting aspect of this uh, whole project. So the compiler is, ven like, is vendored by one single NPM package. So you do one install and you get the compiler, you get the, the language, you get like the only thing you need is a single configuration file like TypeScript has as well, and define one single directory, and the compiler will just pick up your reason files and compiles it to the same JavaScript file name. And, and it's so fast, and this is just the way how the compiler is being designed. Like the first uh, principle for the compiler is be as performant as possible. So they, like, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of the compiler itself, but it's using like really aggressive strategies to to isolate the modules into specific compilation artifacts and it also don't it, it also doesn't try to to run like a process and be in watch mode and then do incremental builds it has a different approach it will just do a clean build like super really fast and later on when you change a file it it is clever enough to understand the relations to each module, which a lot of compilers do, but it does it in a way that's more efficient. So usually when you're just changing one file after a cold build, the, the, the change is not even noticeable. Like the, comp the compilation step is so fast, you don't even know if your, you know, like Watcher has been updating or if, it's, if it recognized the run because it's so fast. And like, I always had problems like when, when I was using TypeScript in code bases, TypeScript is written in TypeScript, the compiler itself. So it's based on the JavaScript runtime. And that means it comes with the, the bulk of a JavaScript runtime. So the boot up times and, and just the way data structures are like organized inside the compiler just makes it a little bit slower than if you take a compiler, compile it to native code, which is running on bare metal, compiled to each platform. Uh, this is also what the Bakascript or the, the Reason compiler uh, is doing. It's compiled to, to native. And yeah, that's, that's probably the way why it's so fast. So let's take a little bit of a, of, a, of a real world perspective here, you know, because I think that this is really interesting to me. You know, I think that the fact that the compilation step is such a sort of a, a focus of optimization of real world, of real world, reason ML, excuse me. I'm, I'm kind of curious, how does this apply to the real world? Is there something, is there an example, for example, where you have seen reason ML really speed up a project or um, help with some obstacles in a project? Why would reason ML be a better choice for projects? So a few things, like, the, what I would like to say is that 
there are certain scenarios or certain applications, especially where you want to use ReasonML. And so as I said, like the type system is, is strongly typed. So every, every value in your program has a, has a properly applied type. And that makes it also, this forces you as a user to, to handle certain scenarios. So if you're having like specific like requests to an API, you can design it in a way that it returns you different branches of a result which means you are forced to handle cases such as this request didn't report back uh, the right date, like it didn't report back because of a server error or it didn't report back because the, the promise or, or the, the request was just dying or we didn't even ask for data yet. This is also a scenario a lot of people don't account. So what you often see is it's like inconsistent UI in React applications where the loading screen is like, loading although you didn't even type something or you typed something previously and then there was an error and suddenly it chose the loading spinner there's some there are some very funky situations where you want to make sure that the ui is working so for instance we had some interesting case that, like products mission critical applications who were talking about it at reasonconf 2019 in vienna for instance, there's an app called FastDD, which is an auto-first responder app for paramedics to assess patient symptoms of brain strokes. And this is also very important. Like if you're like tapping on, uh, you're in the app and you're, you're having a patient there and, and you're not sure what's happening right now and you're tapping, tapping, tapping on the decision tree. What should you do? What are the symptoms? And it, it shows certain things like certain recommendations, what you should do. This is how I understood it you don't want to have like an undefined is not a function error there and you want to definitely be sure that you handled all the cases in a decision tree and i realized that in reason this is through certain features of the language way way easier to express and way more ergonomic ergonomic to handle and like in contrary like if you would do this in typescript you would probably do like a certain type construct of intersection intersection types that like you have object shapes and each of them has a type attribute in there for a specific case and then you need to if else through this and and just the way how typescript works and because uh switch statements are statements and if and else are statements and not expressions makes it really really hard to design your program correctly or it's just very tedious that people are like taking shortcuts and then sometimes you yeah you just want the compiler to just tell you what you're missing and and for these scenarios it's like amazing another application uh, would be like the Sotheby's online bidding app so it's an online platform for high value products such as art or something which is like a magnitude more expensive than your average thing you would buy on eBay there's also like a nice uh, reason conf talk about it this is also super important. Like if you're doing live bidding, you, you want to make sure that your UI is not glitching out while you're like putting in the numbers because this would mean that you probably don't be the highest bidder and stuff like this. There was another application which is made by CCA.io. It's a railway safety app for the French and Swiss railway traffic uh, companies or societies or whatever the organizations are called. And this is also super mission critical. Like if you have a train and the train passes a red light, the train uh, conductor needs to, to report back to the, to the mission control 
and and tell them what happened and how it happened and there is a huge very complex form for that you don't want to mess it up either because like if mission control is doing something wrong and scheduling the trains wrongly uh, that might be a problem so there's also like again this this idea of having a huge decision tree a huge complex data structure and you need to make sure that your program is covering all of these cases and or another example blockchain technology there's a there's a blockchain called coda and they are building their blockchain in ocaml so the the whole system is in ocaml for handling all the blocks and whatnot the blockchain wallet is actually a react application or even an electron application so they use it with reason to have all the type guarantees in there as well and super mission critical right like you don't want your wallet to glitch out and destroy some data or whatever yeah so these would be like the the things another example what i think is really cool like in a rich text section like when you're expressing a system which is also just structured data it's a tree like data structure in a sense and you just want to traverse this tree and render out the correct UI elements. And the way how Reason handles recursion is also super nice. There is also like a dedicated notation for tail recursive functions. So you can have tail recursion and the compiler will optimize it for you if you do it correctly. And this makes it very, very pleasant to traverse trees also when you're writing certain parsers or whatever, language parsers or parse strings or all this kind of chess, what would involve like complex logic. So I hope I answered the question. Uh, took a little bit longer, but. No, of course. I think this is a really good illustration of some of the great applications or great situations where you want to use ReasonML. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I wanted to um, return back to just briefly before we jump into a little bit more about some of the real world applications of ReasonML, one of the things that, that I found interesting from looking at you know, our, our discussion before this is um, that ReasonML prefers composition over inheritance. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how that makes you know, this approach of using ReasonML better than others? Yeah, so in Reason, there is a concept of modules, the same way as there are modules in JavaScript, but a little bit more sophisticated. Every file in a Reason code base is automatically a module, and each module exposes a list of functions, types, uh, constant values, whatnot, and you can also have submodules, and so it's you can imagine it like namespaces. You define a module, my module, inside another file module, and you can access it with the dot operator. So my module or my module dot my nested module, and then you can access all the values in there. And so it doesn't really it. Although it's a ports class based hierarchy, so object orientation is also theoretically possible, but it's not really well advertised. It goes with modules for everything. There are certain constructs which you can do. So you can create a module and put some elements in there, and then you can include the content of a module inside another module. So if you want to design some complex, more complex inheritance-like pattern, you can do this with modules only. You want to have a certain set of functions, just create a new module and include the previous model and then a module and then override the functionality of it. Or 
define the interface of a module as a module type signature and annotate your modules you want the signature to comply to. So you, you have structural, structurally shaped module types which can comply to interfaces. But at the same time, you are kind of like nudged in a way where you just design functions and the functions receive values. And there is like this convention where you define a type T for each module. So you create a module user and you define type T as this representative type. And from there on, you create functions like get username or create display name or make display name or whatever. And it passes in the type T, um, which is the user type. And this makes it way easier to compose functions together because like if you want if you want to handle different types, you would, or what do I want to say is you don't really need to think about like <clears throat> making a subclass and then call the super function before otherwise it needs to initialize all the values in there. And then you have the disk keyword to do this and that. You don't really need to, to carry along this implicit knowledge because everything is like expressed as this, this one type. You pass it into a function and do whatever with it. Yeah, this is like the, the, the thing. And then you have like the pipe operator, which makes it possible to chain function calls together in a very nice way. So you would uh, create a user, for instance, and pipe it into the get display name function. And the get display name function should be uppercase. So you pipe it into the JS string uppercase function. And everything would neatly line up as this. You have the value, then you have a pipe operator, next function, pipe operator, next function. This allows to build the smallest functions possible um, of this specific module type. And then if you have more complex use cases, which you usually would encode in a method or whatever, you just totally uh, create a new function, chaining these things together. And since first class functions are, are in JavaScript, are a JavaScript feature, they're also a feature in ReasonML, of course, it's very easy to just create the things you need at the place you need them instead of like thinking about an architecture and like, okay, I need this to express a function for that. And some people would then say, okay, yeah, let's make it a more specific subclass for that. And suddenly everything is getting more complex than really necessary. Um, yeah. And I think you see this quite often when it, when it comes to um, React code bases where you're having to, you know, invoke super all the time, having to pass all these props all over the place. And, you know, there's, it's, it, it becomes really a kind of confusing to understand how the components in React inherit to one another and how they're handling each other. I'm very curious, does, does the module handling and the approach that, that ReasonML takes with the, you know, with some of the syntax and with some of the module handling, how does that improve, let's say, how people handle state in React components or, or how people handle React components and their complexity in general. The most important thing is that, like for state, you usually have some kind of structured data. For instance, you would have like an object expressing a certain state. So if you're having Redux or whatever, you have a store and the store expresses certain set of values. And most of the time what people want to do is they want to have this reducer pattern where they want to dispatch an action. And depending on the action, transform the state 
to a new state. And most of the time this goes hand in hand with immutability because you don't want to mutate that object. So what people do in JavaScript is they use the spread operator a lot, the object spread operator, which creates a new object of a new object. So you make sure that everything is like referentially not equal and a newer object. And in ReasonML, we have records by default and records look like objects. So they have a closure and they have attributes, but they also compile to JavaScript objects on the JavaScript side. So these are very easy to interrupt, but they are immutable. So you have immutable records you can use for your React components. You can use the use reducer hook. You can use all the hooks there are. There are bindings to, like there are official bindings from Facebook to Reason React, to React Chess. They are called Reason React. And you can use your use state hook, do all the things in there. When you're setting a state or if you're using a reducer, you can do the, the object spread operator as well in records, but they're immutable by default. And they are also optimized on the JavaScript side there. So if you look at the, the JavaScript output when you're doing the spread, it looks different than when you do it in JavaScript where you need to, to spread it, uh, which has a runtime overhead. Also, another thing, since we have this one, like everything revolves around three concepts. Like we have modules, we have variant types, and or maybe also records, and we have pattern matching. And I think these are like, I mean, these are a topic on its own, but the idea is that you can express with a variant, you can express certain states, which are just explained by, by words. For instance, as I said, the request, which is not asked, pending, success or error. And it can also contain a payload. And with that, you can, you can express your intent object of type something with this action name and this action name, and then it has certain junction parameters in there, which you can access when you do if and else. In pattern matching, you can use the switch statement, which looks like a switch in ReasonML, and match on the specific patterns. You can look into the success pattern for our request, form up the payload and check if the payload has a specific string value in there, and then access that in like uh, go into this branch and do some logic in there if you happen to end up in this case. This makes it so nice to write reducers. There is like no comparison when you have more complex data structures uh, like rich text handling or whatever. Yeah, this is the way to go. So in that context, I feel like handling state is easier and expressing state is easier. I couldn't agree more, and I'm very excited to uh, dig into this myself after this. So, so let's take a big picture view now. You know, I think that we dug into a lot of the syntactic or some of the architectural features of uh, a ReasonML, but let's dig into some of the kind of real-world use cases that are mission critical that we wanted to talk about today. I'm curious. We talked about how you know ReasonML improves the the debugging experience, the developer experience, state handling, all of these things that are very common needs in JavaScript. How does it make websites more resilient in general or more stable in general? Are there certain features in ReasonML that, are, that lend themselves to, let's say, stability in the sense of how we think about it in the, in the business world? Yeah, so as I said before, like this, this whole 
correctness or the quality of the types is very important to ensure that the, the runtime is running correctly. Most of the time, we are used to type systems which just allow mixing unspecific values with correct values, which completely destroys the point of having types, in my opinion. When you're consuming a library which introduces any types everywhere, suddenly your whole code base is in question. Is it correct? Is it incorrect? And this impacts the whole development process. Like, just imagine you have a code base which guarantees you that when it compiles, it will run the way the, the, the programmer has intended it to run in the type space. That makes a huge difference and gives you way more confidence when you're committing code and see the CI runs through and it's like, okay, now I just need to see if the tests are green and, and we're fine. And with what I've experienced with, with gradual type systems or with plain JavaScript, you have no confidence unless you have a very, very strong team discipline. And as soon as you have a little bit more developers on the team, you will find that people will use escape patches in many places, which are hard to spot. And in case of reason, since you have all the necessary facilities in place to, to just write, you, you get into this pit of success. That's probably the, the thing. Yeah, the compiler guides you to, to a working implementation of what you're trying to express. And still gives you the flexibility to, to escape from that in an unsafe space still, which is well isolated and well and way easier to spot than if you just like assert an any type in this specific case, in this little if branch, which looks like an as something and like, okay, this is super hard to spot in, in code reuse as well. So I think it's it's not only technically helping writing better, more stable websites, but it's also socially helping, giving the engineering team the, the confidence in committing stuff and merging stuff. Like if you if they say, okay, the compile process goes through, I'm pretty certain this 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 works the way it should be, and it will not crash. <laughs> That's the most important thing. I think um, a lot of developers around the world definitely identify with being able to just hit compile and know that when it's compiled and it works, it's just going to be a completely stable code base. Yeah, that's, that's uh, uh, very interesting. And uh, I'm kind of curious, though, uh, uh, as well. You know, we've talked about some of the big names that are already using ReasonML. People like Sotheby's, Swiss Rail, I believe you said. What are some of the other names who are using ReasonML? Are there any other well-known companies or projects, uh, even in the open source world, for example, that are depending on ReasonML or leveraging ReasonML in some way? There are a lot of companies, but probably the, the bigger ones people know are McKinsey, for instance, um, also a big consultancy, SAP, Chain Street, which is doing a lot of uh, financial computing, Tezos, partly, because also the, the Tezos blockchain technology is built on OCaml, which is the same heritage, and Ahrefs, which are doing SEO-related tasks and tools. So these are like the bigger ones, but there are also other probably more startup-esque companies relying on it. For instance, Draftbit. Draftbit is building like a codeless, uh, codeless 
editor experience for writing React Native applications built on Expo. So this one is really, really exciting because I feel like it's a very complex project and, and I can really see that they will benefit from the technology, just the way how complex it is. You need to keep all the context in your head and you want to make sure that this context, the compiler gives you back is actually correct. So, and other than that, uh, there's also Travel World in Austria, which is also a startup. They also started adopting it and they kind of liked it. Like they were also evaluating a lot of options. What, what, should, what should they use? Like should they use TypeScript or should they go further with plain JavaScript? But these companies from every company I've been talking to, like all of them were really, really happy about the decision they made. So hopefully <laughs> they will still be satisfied in the future. I'm pretty certain. Yeah, but it's it's... On a scale from very small to very big, there's there's players everywhere using it. I think we're really seeing that level of penetration that is indicating that finally, I think ReasonML is 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 you know well on the adoption curve, maybe past the early adopter stage to the early kind of uh, pragmatist stage, which is really exciting because I think you know the fact that we're seeing McKinsey, SAP adopting uh, ReasonML is is a, is a huge testament to its success. So you know I know ReasonML is open source. And, you know, at Tag1, we love open source, obviously, and I love open source as well. You know, all three of us have been in the open source world for a long time. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the ReasonML community. You know, I'm, I'm very used to the React community and the Drupal community and, you know, some of the other communities that are uh, a little bit more focused on, you know, doing really nifty things with the front end, but not necessarily doing really nifty things with functional programming and the underlying language and linguistic features. So, so I'm really curious, you know, what is the reason the ReasonML open source community like? What, how, how have you worked with the ReasonML community and how are you helping kind of advance that community and ecosystem forward? That's a really great topic because I think the, the Reason community is, even though it's a little bit smaller than the Chowski community, obviously, it's a very focused and very, very friendly community. So most of the people are aligned on certain values. They, they have a certain paradigm in their head on a technological level, but at the same time, they're also like super late uh, back and helping each other. The best way to engage with community is via Discord chat. There is, uh, there is a ReasonML server for that. And there is like the cool thing about it, since the community is so focused and enthusiastic, when you're starting out with ReasonML, you're dropping into the general channel, for instance, and you're just asking dumb questions about, you know, how do I define this specific kind of type? And you can be sure that there is like a response time of like three minutes and you will get like a straightforward answer, even with examples, because people are just like, they, they want to teach it and they want to help out other people. So it's, it's very, it's, it's lifting you up when you see that kind of like enthusiasm. And there's also a lot of open source going on. ReasonML itself is pretty much like all open source across the whole stack. So the compiler, the language, everything is, is basically uh, licensed with MIT or um, more liberal licenses. And so what I'm currently working on, like in the Reason Association, we are like a, a foundation, a legal foundation around it. To, to support the development and the community. And what we are doing right now is 
we are revamping the documentation platform for ReasonML that you have all the necessary information on there, like for Reason as the language, for the compiler specifics, for Reason React specifics and the APIs and whatnot. And this is all a community effort, actually. So I, I mean, I try to, to initiate it, but I also try to encourage people to contribute. And it doesn't even matter if you're like a complete beginner or like advanced user or super expert or compiling like first-time contributors who are complete beginners to the language because their input values a lot. Like they, they know exactly, okay, I have a problem with how do I do this specific pattern in Reason React? And I know how to do this and I learned it right now. So I better like contribute it back. And, and I have great hopes that this new platform, which is called reasonml.org, will like super, supercharge the community that people are like, coming to the platform, they know straight away how to use everything. Yeah, so the community is great. That's probably the summarization. Well, it's very exciting. I'm very interested in getting more involved with, with the ReasonML community. And I understand also that you organize ReasonConf. You organize ReasonConf 2018 and 2019 in Vienna. Tell us more about ReasonConf and how this idea came to be. What's the community like in Vienna? You know, as an event organizer myself, I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. How did ReasonConf come about and, and what's it been like to help with this whole conference circuit? So ReasonConf 2018 was the very first conference for ReasonML. And it all started out with like a small meetup group in Vienna, which is called React Vienna. It has grown <laughs> substantially the the last few years but we had this like thing going on before reactive conf in um, bratislava where we invited speakers from like who were traveling to bratislava and one day before they came to to our meetup and talked about their talks and it was really great and there was also people um talking about reasonable like sean grove or jared uh, forsyth they had really really great influence on how I think about reason right now. And there were also people from the Facebook team coming to this conference and, and also talking about reason email. And, and, and we were just like, we just had found also like our own reason email meetup there. So I was really interested in like, how can we push this forward? How, or how can we, we make this a little bit more like big <laughs> in a sense and we had discussed it and we were like asking, okay, what if like this idea, what if we just organize the conference, which is just the goal of this conference is to, to just get people on board <laughs> and get them started. And uh, this was the tagline of the first conference, getting started. Like how, what, what is it for? I'm a complete beginner after so our premise was after three days, you go out and you can at least write a simple React application with Reason. That was the, the outline. And we had all the core team members there working on the syntax, working on the compiler. And on the first day, we had a workshop day and people were like hacking on some exercises. And we had questions they could ask the maintainer compiler or as at Facebook. And they were super, super nice helping out. And on the second day, we had our conference itself and had some really nice talks about where it could go. And on the last day, we had a hackathon and also a little Vienna tour so people get to know each other. And 
it was a very, very low key conference. We didn't do much advertising or whatever. Just put it on Discord. We, we advertised it on our Twitter and the community was picking it up and everyone was coming. Like you, uh, you went to the conference and you found people and they're like, oh, I'm this guy on Discord. And you're like, oh, <laughs> this is how you look like. Okay. I, I didn't expect that, that you're also here. So it was a real, it was really like a family get together after people have been contributing so much to the ecosystem already in the first conference. And then the second conference in, in 2019, it was a little bit more mature, I would say, because people are, you know, in the beginning is like the hype phase. People are really excited about it. We have enthusiasts working on tooling and, and building libraries. In the second conference, we wanted to focus this aspect that ReasonML is not just a toy, but more like a real major platform you can build on now and you don't have to wait. So the 2019 motto was um, on the road to production. That's why we have a lot of references in there about ReasonML 2019 because people were talking about their applications and why they use Reason and why they like Reason. I think there is not enough coverage of how popular it is so this this was basically the goal and we also did this three day thing where we had the first day workshops again but with the difference that we also offered more advanced stuff which is for instance an OCaml workshop where people could also tip their toes into real like hardcore functional programming but on the other hand we also had our front-end oriented reason react specific workshops as well so we try to kind of bridge the gap between both communities. And we also had a US installment, actually. There was in Chicago in October 2019, we had a specific conference about the, the US community. And John Walk was also talking there. Like it was the first time after a long period of no talks. His last talk was about ReactJS when he introduced it to the public. So that was kind of a big deal for us. And I think his keynote was also like super inspirational for the community and people are really excited about this. For 2020, we didn't plan a conference, which we're lucky because of the current situation with the virus, of course. But our plan was to, to have another conference in 2021, also in Europe probably, but we can also figure out a US location as well. But we wanted to go back to this 2018 vibe where people are like coming together. We, we try to, we really try to advertise this whole reasons for JavaScript, reasons for reason react kind of branch. People with JavaScript experience should just come and just see what they get or TypeScript users and, and get inspired. What is still possible? Like you can even squeeze out more type efficiency in your code just by using the right language. And this will probably be like in 2021 then. I'm really excited about it. So it's a, it was a great journey so far. Like I would do it again if I could. So, and I also encourage people, like if you, if you are having an idea of having like a meetup or whatever, because a lot of people are asking, oh, is it, is it hard to have a meetup about a reason? I totally encourage just to do it. Like just try to peak interest advertise a little bit maybe reach out to some other organizers to give you advice a lot of people helping out great times 
just, yeah, I encourage you to do it as well. Wonderful. And with that, we are running a little bit out of time here. So um, I think that was a wonderful call to action for our audience to get involved in ReasonML, check out ReasonConf talks from years past, and also plan to attend ReasonConf 2021 in Vienna. Is that going to be where it's going to be or Most somewhere likely, else? Yeah. Most likely. Okay. Well, I'm very excited because it's been years since I've been to Vienna. So maybe I'll make a trip out there to come and say hi. So the, uh, and now for our new segment that we've just introduced over the last couple of episodes, the aside tag here at Tag One Team Talks. Every one of us is gonna give about a minute of something that's interesting and going on in our lives that we can share with the audience and just meant to be something really fun for about 60 minutes. Shameless plugs, welcome. So I'll go ahead and start and then we'll go to Patrick and on to Michael Myers. I run a conference, by the way, here in New York City called Decouple Days. And you know, your discussion just now, Patrick, of, of some of the challenges around how ReasonConf 2020 would work theoretically, and also some of the other conferences, of course, in Vienna and Bratislava that are that are suffering. We are so Decouple Days 2020 is the fourth year of the only conference right now, the only conference in the entire world dedicated to the future of CMS and their architectures. So Decouple Days 2020 is happening July 22nd through 23rd, 2020, but we've just decided to not have it in Manhattan, New York City, and instead to take it virtual. It's going to be online on Zoom. We're going to be posting this more, more information about it, or uh, by the time you watch this information, it will be posted about our new conference being virtual. And um, very happy to welcome everyone to our new virtual conference, including people who are not going to be in New York City. So that's my little shameless plug. What's going on with you, Patrick? I have very, very specific topics in my life, which are uh, troubling me like one of them is like history of europe and there's this one specific royal family which is called the house of Habsburg, and it's such i've i've got a book which is sadly in german but it's about short insights into the timeline of this royal house and i learned that once an austrian royal was promised by napoleon to be kaiser of mexico and he actually arrived there he went to he went to Mexico, he started his new position, but unfortunately not for long and they kind of, <laughs> they, they were really fond of their democracy and they got back, back up from the US. So he was, he was done for, <laughs> that was a very interesting insight. I didn't know that. Other than that, the, the, the crisis actually, like the Corona crisis caused one issue. It's very hard to get yeast from, uh, from the stores. So I had, I, I don't know, people suddenly turn into bakeries everywhere. So there's no yeast. So I was like complaining on Twitter about it. And someone was pointing out that you can actually grow your own yeast. And I realized that's true. It's actually super easy. You just take a bottle of water and put into like dates or other fruits, dried fruit without sulfates and put in a spoon of sugar and then just let it stand, maybe shake it a little bit and let it stand for a few days and you will see that it develops uh, yeast in there. Then you can use it for baking. So if you're out of yeast and you're interested in baking, you should try that. It's super easy and, and super cool. I can't count how many uh, coworkers and friends I have who have their sourdough starters and are baking up a storm. It's really, uh, uh, I think at the end of this, we're all going to be owning our own bakeries from our uh, work from home situations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what's going on with you, Michael? 
That's that's amazing, Patrick. I I've been doing a lot more cooking as well. I reserve Sundays to like really big, complex, interesting meals and experimentation, and definitely find myself with a little bit more time to to cook. I wanted to talk today about another <laughs> uh, quarantine-related thing. We we recently moved up to the Berkshires uh, fortuitously at the beginning of this year. And I've been trying to solve my internet and Wi-Fi problems, which I've talked a lot about. It's my 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 sections here, and I, we just don't have enough coverage. And so I was talking to our infrastructure team about it, and they recommended the uh, Ubiquity Networks, the Unify access points. And they have indoor and outdoor access points, and I'm blown away. They're, they're, it's you know fairly more complex than you know your typical Linksys router, but you know, the access points outside get 600 feet of coverage in either direction, and we need only need one access point internally. And so, you know, with, with three pops, we're able to get coverage over, you know, the immediate area, and it's been fantastic. I can, you know, get outside, get a little bit of sun, and talk on a call via VoIP, you know, throw the ball around with the dog while I listen in on a meeting, which I'm, I'm not doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's really helped, you know, get out of the cabin fever a little bit, but also, you know, give everybody a little bit of room to roam. So check out the UI.com for their, their crazy, and it's like ridiculously uh, affordable for, for the kind of technology it is. Wow, wonderful. Well, I'm excited to hear more about the continued saga of internet connectivity. For you know, glad to hear that it's um, finally resolved and um, able, and, and that you're able to take Leo out and um, uh, still be on a call. Oh, I mean, that's it, the most important it's, thing. It's, it's not even remotely resolved, but now you can get a really bad internet connection anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love that. Alrighty, well, this was ReasonML. I'm very, very excited uh, about this topic, and I'm definitely going to be digging into some of the materials that Patrick just mentioned here today. Um, and I think we did a really good job of covering not only uh, why ReasonML is so compelling from the developer experience standpoint, but also from more of the business standpoint. Once again, uh, thank you so much to uh, Patrick and to Michael Myers. All the links that we mentioned today are going to be posted online with this talk video. And if you like this talk and you want to hear more about ReasonML or about other topics, please remember to upvote, subscribe, share it with your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, uh, socially distance, of course. Check out our past talks at tag1.com slash tag team talks. And as always, we'd love your feedback and any topic suggestions. Please feel free to write to us at tag team talks at tag1consulting.com. I want to thank Patrick Staffa, who was very, very, very gracious to join us from Vienna today, and also Michael Myers. Thank you so much for this episode, for joining us on this episode. And until next time.